0: Welcome to the Swike Podcast, the only podcast that shares
1: the stuff you didn't know you needed to know about jobs, careers, and life. The Swike Podcast, the stuff I wish I knew earlier.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Swike Stuff I Wish I Knew Earlier podcast. We're here with one of our new guest hosts, uh, Dan Marquez, and uh, we have a bit. uh, How's you doing, Dan? (laughs) Pretty good. Can't complain. Sounds good. So he comes to us with a background in, in consulting, tech, and business, and a whole bunch of other things, and uh, we, we go way back through our uh, consulting days. And uh, yeah, I'd love for Dan, if you can share a little bit about what you're doing now, and then we'll go back in time and, and uh, go through your history. So sure. what are you up to these days?
1: Uh, so currently, I work, in, uh, I work at Google. I'm part of the Google Cloud business. I work as a uh, customer experience account lead, which means that I work on behalf of some of our larger clients, and I'm the person working with those clients to help them think about you know, the, the arc of the transformation that they are on to, to move to the cloud and trying to get value out of their move to the cloud. Sounds good. So before we got to that point in your life,
0: what was dan like as a kid so maybe some early fond childhood memories were you kind of the, the rambunctious outgoing kid were you like the nerdy nerdy techie kid or was there s- something else
1: in the mix so what was Dad, Dan dan like, like as a kid this question feels like a trap <laughs> um <laughs> no traps yeah, no So i mean i was um i was definitely uh a, a geeky child i was you know i played a bunch of like uh, I played a lot of like Magic: The Gathering. I played a bunch of games and stuff. Uh, played like D and D with my with my friends and everything. So we were very geeky. I was in, interested in that kind of part of the universe for pretty early on. Uh, I was also a theater kid from like a very young age. I think in like grade one, uh, I was I was involved in like little you know little kid theater stuff and um and did like extra theater stuff on the side like on the weekend so i've been a theatrical person most of my life and that continued on through you know through uh, school i was in the theater company in my high school i was involved in the u of t engineering theater company which is called school night uh when i was at u of t uh i did that for four years and then i directed that show and then i come back every year as a former director to help with the show so yeah, a combination of um I don't know, geeky theater kid was was me with with like um you know, with with a kind of scientific bent, like I certainly had that aspect to me too and I recall my my you know, my dad always emphasizing that I, I should be an engineer when I grow up. Uh, I think because when he was growing up, all the people that ended up being successful that he was surrounded by it, ended up being engineers. So he that was his okay. like his view of what it, what good looked like. So that was always in the back of my mind. Um, yeah. And then I, at various points during my childhood, I had different um, kind of arbitrary objectives that kind of locked in. <laughs> like at one point, I remember just hearing people say, you know, like, oh, that's good, but it's not, it's not rocket science. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. it sounds like rocket science is the best thing that you can do. So I'm just going to do that. And, and that just arbitrarily became my objective for what I was going to do with my life for like Five years, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that honestly that's the way that i've I've approached a lot of goal setting in my life, and it hasn't necessarily been the best way to do it, but it, it wasn't the worst either you know setting your your sights on some arbitrarily um, lofty objective and then falling a little bit short of it still usually ends up landing you somewhere pretty good so sounds
0: good i'd love if you dive a little bit deeper into some of these areas because uh not all of these things uh are really synonymous with each other right so i picture like science a science kid uh, a little bit more kind of shy and introverted and then you have this theater aspect of of it uh and then again the the geeky kid again seems a little more shy uh, and then you have the theater aspect as well right uh and and kind of rocket science and engineering thrown in so i'd love you kind of share like uh was there any of that like like shyness or the outgoingness cuz i know you as one like the most outgoing people i know <laughs> right? uh so so how, how a, does good that of <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm a good liar a good a good actor um no I, I mean i i think that's probably sort of like the default assumption of what a geeky kid looks like or or a nerdy kid looks like but i don't think that that has to be true mm-hmm. you know i i think that i you mean know, if you think of a lot of like some of the more famous, geeky people, like they're pretty outgoing people, people that have combined like, geekiness and nerdiness with other things, and, and ultimately kind of like brought that towards a successful result. Um, yeah, I think I've always been, and, and it's it's come through into my professional career, I've always been someone who is both like, interested in like, what's underneath something, but also mm-hmm. interested in like, distilling that down and simplifying it, right? Like, I think when I was a kid, I would always say like, I'm not afraid of any problem because all I need to do is take some big giant problem and just like tear it down into its component parts and then I can solve it that way. You know? So, so I, I guess that probably gave me like courage that I hadn't earned, but, but it also changed the way that I approached problems and thought about problems. And similar was true of like, you know, public speaking or being on stage, whatever, like I just viewed it as something that I can break down into its like, I don't have to be afraid of it because it's like this big, scary thing. I'm just like, well, I, you know, I'm just I'm delivering this line. I'm like focusing on this character. I'm highlighting this aspect of my experience. I'm just sharing it with people. I happen to be on a stage, you know, and um, yeah, I, I think that I don't think those things are incompatible uh, mm-hmm. at all. I think that's yeah, probably and, and just just... like a misconception.
0: Yeah, I really want to kind of test kind of that default assumption because there are lots of stereotypes on there and, and there's always uh, sides of the spectrum. Um, but uh, yeah. so, so I just want to kind of poke into that because I know that you're quite different than the, than the typical.
1: <laughs> well, and I, you know, I, I do think back, um, if there's one thing that I suspect played a role in this, uh, when I was pretty young, like my parents gave me a lot of like extra education, especially on stuff like math and science. And like, you know, like, like the crunchy grilling you on like, your multiplication tables, and just like, to the point where where things like math become muscle memory, I think that that has played a meaningful role. Because I think a lot of kids that go and they they look at math and science, and they get scared about it. Mm. It's because it's not it's not a comfort space. Right? I see it nowadays in my professional environment. I see a lot of executives shy away from technology and digital change and all these topics, not because there's not value there, but because they're fundamentally uh, foreign concepts, right? right? They don't understand it. They don't know how to engage with it on an intuitive level. And so they shy away from it, even to their detriment. And I right. think that as kids, people do that with, with math and science. And they're like, well, it's not cool. Well, no, if you knew how to do it well and you, you would like it. And then it would be interesting because it's all about puzzles. And like, that's me in a nutshell. I'm like, I'm just always doing puzzles all the time, right? Like whenever I'm not, when I'm working, it's all like trying to solve problems and like break down complexity. When I'm not working, I'm playing board games and doing escape rooms and stuff. So, you know, I think once you get past that hurdle, it makes this stuff like easy and interesting. And then it opens up all these doors, but but a lot of people I think don't don't end up getting there, which is too bad.
0: For sure. It reminds me of quote Mm -hmm. where there's no such thing as problems, only puzzles to be solved. So uh, it's it's one of those things that there's always an answer. It's whether or not you want to dig into it. I'd I'd love if you chat a little bit about like that, that confidence that you had. Was it kind of nurtured through like the math, the science tutoring? Or did you always have it as a kid? Or like, is there some combination of that?
1: I, I don't know if you can recall. No, I mean, I think, well, one, I think like being up on stage and doing acting and stuff, when you're like too young to know that you're supposed to be afraid of it (laughs) helps, right? Because it's just like, it implicitly builds a connection between like, being in front of people is not a scary thing. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, it's built into you as a kid. And then the same with like learning all this math, it's like, okay, well, I did all this stuff. Now when I go and do it in a classroom, it's like super straightforward to me. And I don't understand why everyone is so stressed out. I think that these things build like, they build like fundamental confidence in yourself, that you're not like, you're not registering, you're just like, well, I don't know why everyone is so worked up about all these things. You know, it's similar to, you know, I've I've always had a a rule that I realized early on in my professional career, which I think has served me well. Uh, And, you know, Luca, you'll probably remember from our our time at at Deloitte, like I was relatively junior, but I was one of the most relatively junior people that seemed to have like a lot of senior connections to two partners. And like, you know, I I was I was pretty comfortable working my way through the partnership and talking to all these folks. And and the rule that always served me well is like a recognition of the fact that these people by merit of being senior, they're not better than me, they are older than me, right? They're (laughs) like me, but time shifted. Yeah, right. Now, some some of them are straight up better. Like, I'm not pretending that there aren't people that are better than me, right? Sure. Um, But but just like, your seniority is the result of the extra time you've had. And I want to respect the wisdom and the experiences and everything that you bring to the table. That doesn't make you a superior human, right? So if you think like that, it means that you can bring a a peer relationship to the table with senior people that I think is often to some people is an affront. And like those are the people you should avoid anyway, because they suck. But to the people that really matter, it's refreshing, because it's like, I'm coming to the table, I know that you are bringing your your expertise and your depth of knowledge and everything, I'm bringing fresh perspectives, and I'm not afraid to tell you about them. Um, And there's, there's an opportunity for like a peer level collaboration there that they don't really get, I think, I think a lot of senior leaders are a little bit lonely, uh, because they (laughs) wish that they could have like more energizing conversations with more dynamic people that were willing to engage in these kind of peer level discussions instead of being afraid of them. Yeah. That's that's my hypothesis and it served me pretty well, except for the times that it's like rub people the wrong way where they want me to feel cowed by their seniority. And I'm like, well, I don't care. I'm not I'm not going to work for you if that's the way you want to (laughs) you want to interact.
0: Yeah. And there are always uh, spectrums of that, right? So there's always going to be a population that that will uh, kind of uh, fit fit that typical vision where thou shalt bow down to me because I am senior and older versus like, you know what, like this is an engaging conversation. And I like what you said about kind of that time shifted part. And I would probably argue a little bit that, that uh, no one really is better than you because they've just time shifted with a different priority, right? So if you decide to go down that path, you could probably get to that level too, if you it, it did that hey, as well.
1: Like, I, Einstein is better than me, like straight up better, <laughs> you know, like Malala here, me here, right? There are people that are just like, you know, shaped by their experiences and probably shaped by experiences that I would never have had access to, you know, are, are just like amazing humans and yeah. so be it, right? but but i I get your point that i think given access to similar environments and similar choices you could probably end up as a similar person but i think because that's not true invariably there are going to be people you look at you're like wow amazing (laughs) but i think i think that like that relationship works the same in the other direction like as someone that is now you know that has had leadership opportunities and leadership roles I at least I, I strive to be the person that is opening the door for discussion that cover, that that engages everybody in the room, because like I know that I don't have all the answers and I'm always worried that by imposing my own position on something, I'm going to cut off engagement to the person that actually has the real knowledge or the data or a, or a new point of view on something that I would never have thought of. And um, it's a lot, The reason why I was, like I often ask, I often like frame positions that I have as questions to at least like invite debate on my point of view. Um, yeah, because I just I don't want to be the guy that is the only voice in the room, right? I, I spoke at a conference recently. And one thing I said in that is, you show me an organization where the CEO believes they're the smartest person in the building, and I'll show you an organization that isn't going to last. Hmm. Right. And I think if you can't harness the collective brain power and intelligence and passion and everything of, of the whole of everybody, if it's all just like a spin cycle around one person, like you can't compete in the market if you're not tapping into the full potential of all of your people, or at least, yeah. you know, the, the, the good chunk, <laughs> the smartest chunk.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, there are lots of words of wisdom and nuggets in there, and I almost take it even as, as some of your points about like that confidence piece. It, it could almost turn into a bit of like a, a parenting podcast, where in order to instill confidence <laughs> in your kids, you get them on stage early, get them into math and science, and not be afraid of it, and then they'll, they'll be too uh well m- maybe naive to think otherwise, and the confidence will be ingrained. And then obviously, uh, I love the points about like if. If you're the smartest person in the room uh, you probably want to get into a different (laughs) or or, or a better room, that sort of thing Uh, it reminds me of that sort of quote but but I love we kind of uh, connect back to to your history because there there would probably be a ton of deep dives in here but uh, if, if we talk about you on your path to kind of your, your engineering stream. So you you mentioned that your dad kind of planted the seeds early on, and and what was that trajectory like? So so you you were acting and and you were yeah. So, um, so like through in high indie. school I
1: was you know I I went to I went to an art school in in Vancouver, uh, but you know I also had like AP classes. So I was I was kind of doing this dual pathway of I was doing like a lot of theater stuff but I was also in like AP calculus and science and math and everything. Right. So I had a joint passion for both things. And I think around the end of high school, the question was like, which is kind of my major and which is my minor, like which is the right. priority for where I'm spending most of my time and which is the relief valve or vice versa. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I think that the, um, I think that the desire for, I think relatively speaking, I'm a, I'm a somewhat risk averse person i will I will acknowledge that, so I think that the the desire for like the safe bet that I can complement with these uh, this other side of me one out, but I often think about what like the alternative version of my life might have looked like, you know, <laughs> if I had been like a, a tinkerer on the side, but I had moved to l a to explore my uh my aspirations as a, an actor or a writer or something but um but no, so I, I went you know I knew that like I was interested in both of these sides i I applied. You know i got into the engineering science program at u of t before it was like completely impossible to get into like I, I i know now the um the kinds of marks and stuff that you need to get into any engineering program let alone engineering science at u of t uh is like pretty pretty wild now so i i fear for <laughs> i fear for my daughter's generation and their their efforts to get into <laughs> to university but um Yeah, you know that was that was decision I made. I I decided I wanted to, you know, move geographically. I wanted to uh, kind of strive for what I thought was the best program out there, which was which was engineering science, and uh, and went for it. And that uh, you know that shaped a lot of my a lot of my life. Um, I realized pretty quickly that engineering science then wasn't for me, and that what I really (laughs) enjoyed was actually um, industrial engineering, which is basically like the engineering of complex systems, right? Whether they be businesses or societies or, or, or all kinds of things, right? Or, or like ergonomic machines, things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I just thought I found the space of like design, and dealing with complexity to be the thing that most most compelling to me. So I, I pivoted and and at the same time, I also got into theater at U of T. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of regained that dual track mentality. And like did like twenty other things on the side, right? I was the, <laughs> the chair of the industrial engineering club, and blah 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 blah. Yeah, I don't know. You're I'm always one of those the, people. The that's act- always, always on. Yeah. yeah always
0: active always doing something uh there with a, with a full schedule and all that and I, I love if you kind of share a little bit about that that path to consulting because that's obviously where you started uh most of it and then a lot of the of your career has been in in that realm like was that on your <laughs> radar early and were you grooming yourself there or what, what was that thought process like no
1: it was super late uh, honestly i um you know i went into my my final year uh, of university still not having really spent a lot of time thinking about what i wanted to do um which you know bad on me Uh, (laughs) really (laughs) should have deserved more more thought but um, no i i kind of had conversations with my peers and for some reason in my mind the the process of finding a job was something that happened at the end of the school year and and then like some of my you know my classmates were like no dude it happened like in the first week like, if you're not, if you're not working on getting a job right now, like you're, you're, you're screwed. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no. Okay. So then I started looking around and thinking about what I wanted to do. I applied for a few jobs. I applied to, um, I applied to three jobs. I applied at Canadian tire, Merrill Lynch and Deloitte. Right, um, very different. and I was like, yeah, I know. Cause it's just like, they all sounded vaguely interesting. Um, and I got, I got, uh, got all three, I think. Um, but yeah, I was wary of consulting cause I'd heard a lot of like horror stories of consulting the industry, just being kind of a meat grinder and being like kind of where, you know, creative people go to die. And, <laughs> and so like, I, I wasn't super interested, but I was like, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Like, I mean, I, I, I've heard mixed things, I've heard that, but some people say that consulting's really good, you know, they did an experience year there, things like that. So, so I applied. Um, and honestly, what, what turned me around on Deloitte was the interview experience itself, which I think you were you were actually there for. Um, Probably, yeah. I think you were you were part of that process. So, you know, good, good on you, Lukey. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the like, the people that I met through the process were so interesting. And so down to earth and so, you know, seem to not hate their lives (laughs) that I was like, okay, maybe maybe this is worth considering because, like, I would love to be one of those people sitting here having this conversation on the other side of that desk, you know, doing the kind of work that they 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 told me that they're doing. And so I, I gave it a shot. And, you know, when I when the three offers were all in hand, I looked at them and was like, okay, I think that this makes sense. And you know, for context, that was in the the technology consulting part of the Deloitte Mm -hmm. business. So I knew that I definitely wanted to do something related to technology. And actually, that that's an interesting story. Uh, During a couple of summers preceding when I started, I did some work at a company called Ingram Micro uh, as a um, as like a financial planning analyst within their financial planning analysis group. Um, I did that for for two summers and I worked with a couple of really amazing people um, that uh, Greg Cummings is is namely the the main guy. Um, I worked with a bunch of amazing people that really gave me the latitude to kind of like make the role whatever I wanted it to be with the objective of like just help us find opportunity, find efficiency. So I ended up kind of becoming their like their data wizard and being the person like running, you know, Excel spreadsheets and Microsoft access databases and stuff to like crunch data and find insights that could be applied to the business. And I was good enough at it that they hired me back just to do that. And that's when I kind of, my first real epiphany, professional epiphany was like, wow, technology when applied well, is kind of like business magic. Like why, Mm -hmm. if you had the ability to literally apply magic to your business, right? Like if you had a magic wand to wave on parts of your company, what kind of crazy leader wouldn't take advantage of that, right? Like, that would be insane. And so that that was the realization that the the kind of like scale of value that that great technology can generate is like orders of magnitude, it's tens, hundreds x what you put in. And and so it's like, okay, anything I do is going to be centered around the idea of I want to change businesses with technology and so that you know that was at the core all three of the roles i had applied for were all kind of centered on that in one form or another um but i thought it delighted have the opportunity to do that the most uh and that's how i that's how i got into consulting I i just wanted to work at the intersection of those two concepts
0: and I'd love if we explore a little bit about kind of that decision process between the other two. So was it really just one-sided where Deloitte was the hands-on winner or was it like, you know what, uh, hmm, I'm not sure, maybe, and kind of hemming-hawing a little bit? Or w- what was the decision process between the three?
1: Yeah, I mean, so, so I think the backdrop was the interview at Merrill was not very good. Um, okay. the, you know, like, whereas the people, I could see myself as one of the people I interviewed with or was surrounded by when I was at Deloitte. The um, the Merrill one was like very adversarial. It was like okay. it was not a good vibe, right? Like I, I yeah, value yeah. culture very highly in terms of like where I choose to work. Um, and like that, I did not get a warm and fuzzy feeling from that. So like I did not see myself there. That wasn't really an option for me. Right. Um, Canadian Tire seemed like a really amazing place. Like the culture of everyone I met was really excellent and stuff. So that between those two, it really came down to the nature of the role. I felt that I'd be a little bit my growth potential would be more at Deloitte and it would mean, wouldn't would be as narrow. I'd get a more diverse set of experiences because I knew right. I had a general thesis about what I wanted to do, but I didn't have a specific idea about exactly how I wanted to apply it yet. So the idea of Deloitte seemed much more compelling that way. And then on top of it, like I'll I would be lying if I said that I didn't value like brands and recognize the Mm -hmm. value of a brand in terms of like how it attaches to your own personal brand and, and the career equity that you're able to accrue. And so I mean, I thought, you know, the the Deloitte brand is going to be a meaningful one to to have in, in my pocket. And I think that's, that's, you know, been something I've, I have valued as I've moved through all the stages of my career. For sure.
0: And just to make sure that folks are aware, I mean, these are anecdotes. I'm sure there are a bunch of nice people at Merrill as well (laughs) Uh, that could have the the culture. Those specific um...
1: people were not great. (laughs) Just those specific people. But I mean, I think that's an important thing, right? Like, if you're going to recruit people, if you're going to go, if you're going to be public in any meaningful way, like, you got to put your your best foot forward. Like, don't send grumpy Jim to go and interview people because it's going (laughs) to, it's going to, you know, put a, a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. I don't know. It seems like a bad 100%. choice. Anyway.
0: Yeah, and that's what we tried to do with the with the recruiting process when, when I was leading the team is just make it a, like, this is a place where you want to be. So I'm glad that, that it kind of uh, you did it. the results that we wanted. You did it. So. Thanks, uh, <laughs> Dan. Um, I'd love if we kind of walk a little bit through that consulting journey because obviously Deloitte, then Accenture, BCG and now Google, it's, it's consulting but slightly different. Uh, if you can kind of walk us through a little bit of that journey and kind of the differences, uh, I'd love if you kind of uh, sh- share a little bit of that journey.
1: Sure. Um, yeah. So so, you know, Deloitte was uh, was a really great place to start in my career. Right. I got to meet a lot of really excellent people. Um, I learned a lot very quickly. I think I got involved in a ton of stuff. Like Deloitte is kind Mm -hmm. of a place where like you are allowed to fill up your plate to an unlimited degree, even if it's maybe not the healthiest choice. (laughs) Um, but it gave me access to all kinds of stuff, all kinds of learning. I I think it was really rich. Obviously, I think like there were some, there were some downsides. Uh, you know, for me, I, I certainly saw Deloitte as a relatively, Political environment in comparison mm. to other places that I've worked, um, which just means that it, you know, it's an upside and a downside, right? It can mean that it's like even better in some spots. It can be worse if you find yourself like having to deal with folks that you don't, you don't see eye to eye with. Yeah. But overall, like I was, I was quite happy, and I could certainly see myself like going places there. Um, you know partway through about four years into my career i was approached by accenture that I, that was in the midst of a big push to try to scale up their you know what was called at the time it strategy what eventually became tech and digital strategy practice and it, you know it was something i was trying to do I, it was something i was trying to focus on more and i was doing some of that work but Deloitte is a very hard place to like pivot inside of like, there's not a lot of internal mobility, I think, maybe because of the partnership model, or at least that was my individual experience, like other folks may have had different ones. <laughs> but so I knew that if I wanted to focus on this work, doing it within Deloitte was probably going to be difficult. And so I decided to to move and to make a change. And you know, I think that worked out well. I was at Accenture for eight years, I had a lot of different roles, I it was very formative for me. Um, at the end of my time there, I was uh, leading a, I don't know if I would call it practice, but it was like a, a focus area within a broader practice around digital and technology transformation leaderships, how do you shape okay. digital and technology transformations, I was, I was, I think I was recognized as sort of the go to person for digital strategy. I was a thinker on this. I was a, um, a member of a program they created called the Innovation Fellowship that was actually really, really fantastic. It gave a handful of leaders like myself the latitude to kind of go and explore a space that they thought was important, and do research and engage a team. And I did a lot of my work around the idea of like, why do companies that get disrupted, what could they have done to be more resilient proactively to disruption? And I did a whole series of articles on it called the uh, the gospel of, uh, of resilience.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, and so you know, that that was great. And then I, I decided that, you know, I needed I needed another change about eight years into Accenture. And I had another decision to make, right. So I, I took my time, I put a lot of feelers out in the market, I was exploring like at least a half dozen different options. Um one of which was you know a couple of other consulting firms including bcg where i ultimately ended up um i was talking to folks in um in venture finance uh i was talking to a couple of other tech companies i was talking to a mid-sized corporation that was looking for a chief digital officer so a lot of different a lot of different potential roles um timing wise it ended up that i had the the bcg offer and a couple of other Uh, offers on the table at the same time. And I felt that like the, the place where my net potential for growth would be highest was, was at BCG. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it, MBBS are an interesting set of organizations to work for, like the growth potential, the learning potential is amazing. Being surrounded by so many like ultra smart people is, is a fascinating place to be. And I learned a ton in my time at BCG, like especially about how you how you prioritize value. How do you really think about not just going after things that are good or you know nice to have, but what does real value actually mean for this organization? How do you make sure it's lined up with what the company is trying to accomplish? Uh, and then how do you go from not just talking about it or targeting it to actually running it to ground and like capturing it and getting it on your books? You know, I think that I don't think there's any organization better than BCG at accomplishing that, you know, having a good idea of where there's value to be had and then like running it to ground and getting it like into your bottom line. So that was that was, you know, a sight to behold. Um, And then Google came calling and (laughs) the prospect of working. So, one, I, I mean, I'd been fascinated by digital native organizations and their cultures and their behaviors for a long time. Google is probably one of the best examples of that in history. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of having the opportunity to actually work for one and be inside one was kind of too compelling to pass up. Um, and so I made the change, and I'm still there. And you know, partway through my, my time at Google, I've made a, a move, uh, role wise, So I started in the professional services team as like a delivery executive responsible for the delivery on an account. And then, you know, I think recognizing that I was pretty good at my job, there's a a pivot so that I I took on the role as the uh, overall person responsible for the customer experience at the big accounts that I work for
0: that's amazing yeah I, I that's there's a whole bunch of uh areas where i'd love to do a deeper dive in probably for a different episode because that would just open up a, a can sure. of worms but as we start to kind of close off the uh, discussion so first of all thanks for sharing that journey and, and kind of the uh different uh decision points along the way but if you were to share or summarize a few pieces of Swike, the stuff i wish i knew earlier i know you already shared a lot of them but there are there are any kind of like one two three that you'd say like yeah I, I definitely want to make sure that the world hears about these. So, so what sort of swike would you say are your top, call it, call it three, if, if you had ones to share?
1: Well, as I, as I mentioned to you before we, before we started, I interestingly, so I am the, the chair of the board for an organization called the University Consulting Group, which does pro bono strategy mm-hmm. consulting for charities and nonprofits in Canada. I, I gave a talk recently mm-hmm. uh, for the kickoff of that organization there was for the September cycle, and I gave a talk called 10 uh, Things I Know Now That You Should Know Too. <laughs> and I think, you know, I was probably subliminally um, uh, motivated by this upcoming conversation with you, Lukey. But um, but I think there's there's a few from that that are probably worth highlighting. Um, and I think I've, I've highlighted one already, right? This idea that, like, seniority is a fiction and that, like, mm ignoring it to the most, ignoring it um, respectfully is, is a good kind of path forward for oneself uh, in both directions. Uh, but there's a, a couple that I would probably highlight. So, I mean, one is um, probably the most controversial that I think I, I, I called out on in this uh, presentation, which is in my experience, okay. it is important to recognize that style is more important than substance. And I think Mm, that that is a um, it's not to say that substance doesn't matter, right? Like good ideas, good execution, all these things like they really matter. But the point of that of that audacious comment is that none of them have a chance of creating any value of being meaningful in any way, unless the style side unless perception is effectively managed, you can take a good idea, you can talk it up until the point where it finally actually gets traction and then turns into something real, but something great that is, that is poorly communicated, poorly engaged will always die on the vine. Like build it and they will come is crazy. It doesn't, it doesn't work, you know, like perceptions have a tendency to become reality, right? Narrative is a thing that gives things momentum that encourages people to buy in to, 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 to sign up. To provide their money to provide their sweat equity um you know and and people make choices lightning fast and once a choice is made usually people are much more reticent to change their position than they are to have made it a certain way in the first place so not thinking about the style not thinking about how things are perceived is like the first step to failing every time right like things do not win on their merits, things win on their merits, and how those merits are communicated. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's thing one, I I mean, I just, if you take anything away from this, it's that right, like, it's so important, <laughs> and so much more important than I think anyone gives stuff credit for, right, like, the number of times I've seen amazing pieces of technological change fail, because of change management, or because the wrong operating models put around them, or because the culture was not set up to support that change is myriad, right? Like, it's probably one of the most common reasons why things don't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I alluded to it, right? culture is so much more important than I think in, in every, you know, for yourself, like, don't work at a place that has a culture that you can't abide right? Or don't work there for very long. You know, if, if it's going to be purely transactional, so be it. But like a bad culture, it like, grates at, your, at, at your, your mind, at your a willingness to engage, your ability to harness energy and apply it. Um, great cultures are, for me, they are indicated by a lack of that cognitive dissonance that comes with mediocre cultures. I don't know if you know what I mean. But when you hear leaders say one thing, but then the structures in the organization seem to be forcing you to do something different. Right? That that's a poor culture, where where the intent and the structures don't line up with each other is is a poor culture, right? right? And it just forces you to like work harder to accomplish your everyday stuff. That's what creates burnout, right? Amazing cultures, it's very hard to burn out in an amazing culture. In a terrible culture, burnout is almost a guarantee, inevitably. The last one that I, I often think about is um, you know, decision making is so much more important than I think people appreciate, right? Like good decision making, which means it's made at the right time by the right people that are well informed, that have access to the necessary information and insights um, that's, that's the lifeblood of, of organizations and of individuals, right? Like the ability to make a good decision and to be comfortable with the decision that you make. Yeah. It's just, I I think it doesn't get enough recognition for how important it is. And like the organizations that I've seen that are really amazing, they invariably tend to be the organizations that are, that have an outsized ability to make good decisions where they need to be made. Right. So like, do they empower the frontline worker, to make a choice on behalf of the customer in real time without repercussion are leaders that are making big long-term strategic decisions are they making them on instinct or do they have real data to back up their decisions that, that they're analyzing appropriately right like it's a huge differential but often it gets overlooked because like well i'm a i'm a smart person you know this sounds right to me i'm going to go for it but so often you see the opposite right? you see a bunch of like smart well off people sitting around a room talking about what the experience should look like for this like single mother that makes, you know, forty thousand dollars a year and it's like, well, you have no lived experience to inform you about what that person wants. Did you even ask her? No. So that, that those just those examples, I see them over and over and over of like poor decision making practices and it's usually indicative of mediocre organizations or organizations that are setting themselves up for, you know, unnecessarily hard times. All right, sounds, that's sounds it. Good, Those bro. are my my three <laughs> pearls of wisdom.
0: That's perfect. And and uh, w- what I what I took from that is, uh, for, for the last one on the decisions, is uh, having the data. And part of uh, empowering the frontline workers is they have the data, right? They they know what the, their customers want. Yeah. So, so empower them to do that, which I think is amazing. And it's not necessarily the, the like crunchy
1: data the way we, we think about it, right? Yeah. They have the context. They have the insight. They, right. I mean, there was like a famous story of Tim Hortons from years ago where um, like a frontline worker at a Tim Hortons gave a Timbit to a little kid that was having a bad time for a customer, you know, for a customer, the the mother came in every single day. And it's like, you know, hey, Susan, looks like kid's having a bad time. Here's a Timbit, you know, like and then that makes all the difference. And then she got fired for stealing. And it's like, come on, (laughs) you got to know that that's not a good idea. Right. And like anyone would intuitively look at that and understand it's a bad idea, but the systems and structures they had in place, made it impossible for that good decision to be made
0: right yeah for sure i mean it's context is is uh, is king in, in those types of situations uh on the one for, for culture what i took from that is you got to make sure one key indicator is folks that that walk the walk there's congruence in there where people do as they uh say versus they, they say something and then something else happens yeah. uh that's definitely important and then the one on um, style I'm reminded of like a a Peter Drucker quote where he says that businesses are just marketing and innovation, and that's kind of the same thing like style versus substance so uh the marketing is is really like as if you can bring it out to the world and communicate it well uh that will really help things uh be be adopted easier so I think a lot of great advice uh so so thanks Dan for joining us and. If folks want to reach out to you and uh, maybe hear a little bit more about kind of future aspirations, what are some things uh, in, in in the in the future that folks can look forward to hearing from you, and uh, where could they reach out and connect with you?
1: Yeah, so I'm I am uh, findable on LinkedIn pretty easily. I'm Marquez D on on LinkedIn. That's usually the easiest way to get in touch with me or to engage uh, with me. We'll link to that. But um, you know, I have a whole series of articles I've written uh in the past on a variety of topics like you know like effective decision making kind of the future of like digital organizations how organizations can be more resilient to disruption a lot of these topics i've explored um you know in in written forms on my linkedin page Um, and there's some other topics that i am planning on covering in in one form or another down the road especially the decision making one so hmm. I think that those are things you can look for. But I'm always interested to engage with folks that, like, are curious about these topics or have their own perspectives and want to engage. So, uh, yeah, feel free to reach out to me that way. Yeah, sounds good. And maybe we'll see you in a theater production uh, later on in the future. <laughs> uh, maybe. I, I mean, I would honestly, <laughs> I would love to. I think, you know, the my days on the stage have probably passed me by, but I still like to do a lot <laughs> behind the scenes in terms of like writing and directing where I can. So. Sounds good. Uh,
0: so thanks so much, Dan, for joining us for, uh, and sharing your story and uh, hopefully we'll have you back for a future
1: episode. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks, Lukey. Thanks for the invite. Thanks, Dan.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Swike Stuff I Wish I Knew Earlier, the podcast. If you like the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found this podcast. And if you can give us a review, that would be very appreciated. Feel free to contact me on LinkedIn at Luki Danu, L-U-K-I-D-A-N-U. And the same on most social media platforms. And I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Bye.